The following program is a podcast1.com production. I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so that you can keep more of what you make. Clark.com is our website. When you're looking for deals, ClarkDeals.com. Coming up in just 20 minutes, yet another credit bureau is in trouble for selling you a product that didn't deliver, and all you did was waste money. I'm going to tell you what you need to know when you're looking for information about your credit and credit standing, where you should look first, last, and in between. And later this hour, United Airlines is getting a lot of heat for kicking some young ladies off of one of their flights because they were in yoga pants. But there's more to this story than what has been reported. I'm going to tell you what you need to know. You're not going to be thrown off a flight because of what you're wearing or not wearing normally. So I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma Thursday and Friday as we started our 70th Habitat for Humanity home that has been my honor to sponsor and then build alongside my listeners and viewers. And it happened to coincide with all the media coverage of what was happening with the health care bill in the U.S. House. And so, as you might picture, I was called upon for quite a few interviews for radio and television about it, it meant that I actually did less work than I should have been doing alongside our volunteers on the Habitat Home. But it is something that, as I can tell, has confused the daylights out of people. And I'm looking right now on CNBC. They're running a headline, Trump's Agenda Derailed, all in caps, then with a question mark following it. So don't read too much into the failure of the health care bill in the U.S. House. Politics is an ever-changing thing, and that is just one bump along the road, and a presidency or anything else involving politics in Washington, anytime you have instant analysis it is often wrong because it's a long game. It's a long time with many, many issues expected and unexpected along the way. Now, think about what I just said. I was talking about the health care bill totally in a political prism just then. But the reality is the problem with health care for the last seven, eight years, has been that it's been looked at first as a solo effort of the Democrats, and then later today as a solo effort of Republicans. And I'll repeat something I said a few weeks ago. Health care is nearly one-fifth of our nation's economy, and that's an outlandish share of our nation's economy is our health care system in the United States is unbelievably inefficient economically for any of a number of reasons that I've also talked about. And I will tell you some of the things 
that need to be addressed, all from an economic standpoint, not from a political standpoint. Until we get to where you know what the price of medical care that you're considering having, till you know what it costs, clearly what it costs, we are never going to be in a position to get health care costs in the United States under control. Because you have to start on the cost side. The thing that was the missing equation in the conversation about health care recently in the United States, in Washington, has been focused strictly on who's going to pay and who's not going to pay for the coverage people get and the care they receive. But the problem we have in the United States that none of the rest really can work, no matter how you look at it from a political perspective or a partisan perspective, none of it can work till we come up with what economists would call price transparency, where you know when you're seeking a procedure or you're going for a visit or whatever, what everything's going to cost that is coming your way. Now, in an emergency, if you're in an ambulance, you're not conscious, whatever, that's a different matter. But for the lion's share of times that someone seeks health care, they're walking with their own two feet. The difference in how we do health care in the United States and everything else we do in the United States, it is the only activity, the only activity where the consumer of the services has no idea what the cost of those services are going to be. And even if they do their best, let's say they're having a scheduled procedure or surgery or whatever, they do their best to certify and make sure that they're going within plan providers, always there's the bill shock later where they say, oh, this person wasn't part of your plan. You had nothing to do with whoever that person was coming in and reading an x-ray or coming in doing anesthesiology or whatever it is. So if we're going to fix this the right way, which is instead to figure out, instead of the way we're doing it right now, which is how to determine who's going to get stuck with whom, how much of the bill. Instead, it needs to start with what's the bill in the first place. Pricing transparency. Number two, employers should not be involved in health care in the United States, period. Period. It's one of the great distortions in the marketplace, having employers provide coverage for so many people, it also harms economic growth because people gravitate to large employers who can offer comprehensive health care and maybe would have been better served going to work for a smaller employer, but that smaller employer can't compete in the marketplace for health coverage because of distortions in the market. And economic growth over time overwhelmingly comes from small and new businesses. And we're hurting ourselves economically in the United States by giving this outsized advantage to large employers 
that tend to not grow much over time, the larger a company gets, the more likely it is to tread water or shrink over time instead of grow. Now, there are people today saying that the stock market instability is because of the failure of the health care bill in the House. And the reality is stocks in the United States are overvalued. The question is only how much. And investors trade in a time that markets are overvalued based on confidence. And when something gets unsettled, they're like, this is the time to take a breather. The breather's coming no matter what. No matter what happens in Washington, stock market is due for a timeout. Don't change how you invest because the market that has been generally on a phenomenal upward climb for eight years now be, may be in a position that's ready for, to tread water, decline, or significantly decline for a while. So what? Because the idea is if you're investing for the right reason, which is for the long haul, you benefit from declines in the shorter haul that allow markets to price properly for how profitable the companies are that make up those markets. So, yeah, might be time that we see some kind of meaningful decline in the stock market, or maybe it's a false dawn of a decline and values are going to take off running again. The real key for you with investing is what's your goal? What's your time horizon? Why are you investing? And don't worry about where values are today, tomorrow, or next week if you've got a solid plan and a clear goal that's years down the road. Jen joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Jen. Hi, Clark. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. How are you doing today? I am doing beautiful. The sun is shining. Whenever that happens, it's all good. Ah, great. Well, you, though, are having trouble seeing the sun because you're buried in an avalanche of paper. That is an understatement. I have so many different records. I don't know what to keep and what to toss. I've been told by mostly my parents, and my parents are also buried in paper, Um, something which we will get to inherit. Um, But we are trying to figure out what to keep and what to toss and what's important and what's not. Well, I have my built-in bias about this. So the things I like for you to keep forever are your actual tax returns. Oh, okay. And you live in a state with no state income tax, but you do have the federal tax you have to do. I am right, Correct. right? No state income tax? Yes. Oh, in, well, they're working on that. <laughs> in Washington State, they're trying to institute yes. a state income tax? They are. They Tell are. them, just say no. <laughs> I, <that's laughs> but your federal return, I'd like you for six tax years to keep all your supporting documentation. And okay. then after it's been six tax years, after that point, I just want you to have your return. Because... 
There's no statute of limitations when the IRS says, oh, you didn't file your return in year, I don't know, 1998. And so if you have your return, you say, wait, wait, here it is. Here's what I filed with you. I have it. And you've shifted the burden of proof at that point. Oh, that's great. You know, the normal normal, uh, advice is that you only need your tax records for those six years, but I take the more conservative position that the return itself, you don't throw it away. Do you think it's safe to scan it? Yeah, and then you'd keep it where? On your computer, or where would you keep it once you scanned uh, it? You know, I'd probably put it on a thumb drive and then put it in my safety deposit box. That would be fine. Okay. That would be fine. Um, also, your last pay stub of a job you always want to have, oh. because if an employer okay. goes bust before they issue W-2s, you have to recreate for the IRS what your earnings were in that year. Okay. So your most okay. recent pay stub, you always want to have a copy of. Okay, very good. So what about our, our investments in 401ks and so forth? Great Where question. We, 401ks, 401ks, because you're taxed on everything in it when you spend it, the importance of keeping those records is not high. Only the most recent statements. If you have the last four quarterly statements for your 401k and just moving Uh forward, that's what you keep, that's enough. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. That is such good news. And then a lot of things like loans, once you've paid off a loan, you don't need like a car loan. You pay it off, you don't need that anymore. Well, what about the house loan? Like on a previous home. Previous home, only the documentation showing that you've paid off the loan. Wonderful. Oh, my gosh. You've brightened my day. In fact, if you want to see, I have a list, Keep and Toss, that's on Clark.com. Wonderful. And you can go see, and it'll go into more depth about what things you do want to keep, what things are good to throw away. And when I say throw away, I actually mean shred. Almost always. It's time for today's Clark Rageous Moment. That's when I bring your focus to something where somebody is taking advantage of your wallet today. It's the Credit Bureau Experian. Scams, ripoffs, outrages. It's a Clark Rageous Moment. This makes a trifecta now because Equifax and TransUnion already find over pushing you to pay them for credit scores that are what are known in the lingo of the trade, FACO scores. That's where they're a formula that the credit bureau comes up with, that they make up, how they take the information on your credit report, come up with their version of a score, and sell it to you, even though it has nothing to do, really, with the ones that are used to extend loans to you. Now, I don't have a problem with FACO scores, I only have a problem with you paying for FACO scores. When today, with so many of your credit card statements, you have access to your real FICO score every month. Credit card companies now, thanks initially to pressure from the Discover card, credit card companies now are posting 
your credit score on your report. Or you can get your real one from Discover for free, even if you're not a Discover cardholder, at creditscorecard.com. You can get a FACO score available anytime you want for free if you sign up at creditkarma.com. In fact, they'll give you two versions of facsimiles of your credit score, free whenever you want them, updated for free weekly. So this is something you should not be paying for. When you go to get your free credit report annually at annualcreditreport.com, the credit bureaus will push you there to pay them money for your credit scores. Don't ever do that. Don't waste your money. Because wasting your money by itself is absolutely, completely Clark-rageous. If you're wondering how to get the funding needed to run a small business today, Cabbage has the answer. Cabbage helps small business owners access simple and flexible funding right away without the headaches that come with applying for a traditional loan. You can apply online or from your phone by securely linking your business information to get an automatic decision. There's no waiting in line. There's no scanning documents or tracking down financial statements. Cabbage gives you the flexibility to decide what's best for your business. And once you're approved, you choose when to use your funds and how much you're going to take. You only pay for the funds that you actually use. Cabbage has supported over 100,000 small businesses with $2.9 billion in funding already. Visit cabbage.com save. There's no cost to apply or set up your line of credit. And just for listening to this podcast, when you qualify for funding, you'll get a $100 Visa gift card that you can use anywhere. That's cabbage with a K, K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash save. I'm so glad you're with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our website. When you have a question for me, Clark.com slash ask, I ask you, Have you heard about this fuss with United Airlines kicking some young ladies off a flight because they were wearing yoga pants? Yoga pants are so in. You see women and young ladies wearing yoga pants everywhere for everything. And so United ends up in a social media firestorm. And does it happen fast? When someone witnessed a United Gate agent throwing these young ladies off the flight and then starts tweeting about it, and as a result, it just took off as a story. And United totally blew it in response. United responded to the tweet, United shall have the right to refuse passengers who are not properly clothed via our contract of carriage. This is left to the discretion of the agents. So then that was pouring gasoline on a fire. And then the United ads of women in yoga pants boarding United flights suddenly materialized all over the web. And this was all within hours. Now, I fly somewhere almost every week of my life, some weeks more than once in a week. And I, along with many other people, dress with a casual informality on planes that some people find offensive. I tend to travel in shorts, you know, um, 
what do you call these kind of shorts? I mean, whatever they are, like golf Car- shorts, cargo shorts, cargo right? shorts. Yeah, these aren't really cargo, but anyway, shorts and uh, golf shirt and tennis shoes. And based on a lot of people I see flying, that's actually pretty dressed up today. And people are sometimes dressed to a point that's embarrassingly casual. And what I might even think is improper on an airplane, but where United really messed up and any business has to be aware is that you cannot cavalierly, casually, or coldly answer something once it has taken on a life in social media. Now, the reality is United's been trying to catch its tail ever since because the two Three people, some reports two people, some reports three people. So I'll say two people, three people, whichever it is, were traveling on employee passes. Employees for their own travel or to give to family members and friends can give people the privilege of standby free travel. And when an airline allows somebody to travel on one of these passes, the airline imposes a dress code that is, in some cases, moderately strict to others, very strict. And they limit what you can wear. They want you to dress significantly better than the average air travel passenger today. And remember, the airline is giving somebody the privilege of flying for free. And so if they want to set rules that you have to wear this, that, or the other, that's fine. And United has said, hey, if you're a paying passenger and you want to wear yoga pants, go for it. Pretty much people can wear anything, as I've seen on airplanes, or an amazing lack of any fabric I've seen on planes. So the issue here is not that United was ad hoc throwing people off the plane, even though their initial response was, yeah, we want to throw somebody off the plane. We can do whatever we want. Dumb, 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 and dumber. So as for what airlines can do, the one case, and this has been true ever since September 11th, the one case where you can get yourself thrown off a plane in a hurry, is if you upset a flight attendant. They are given full discretion to have you tossed off a plane if your attitude is bad or you give lip back to a flight attendant. Don't do it. You know, you're in a very tight quarters on an aircraft. And it's so important in that tight quarters that everybody be as cooperative with each other as they can. Politeness pays. Respect pays. And was it the right thing for United to say that that women on free flight passes can't wear yoga pants? I have no fashion sense at all, but I tell you with today's uh, acceptance of yoga pants, I think it's a silly thing to say that People on the employee passes can't wear them, but it's fully their right to do so. It's their response afterwards that is a lesson to every company 
that you need to very clearly articulate your policies in a positive way and not in a snippy negative way like United did and the story got away from them. Kim? Yeah, I agree with you completely. The way they handled it was ridiculous. I did want to um, emphasis, though, the way that they worded it was not yoga pants. It was leggings. And there is a difference between leggings and yoga pants. Sometimes leggings can be very sheer and you can actually see through them. They're They're kind of closer to tights. Remember, there was a brand of yoga pants that uh, accidentally was was see-through. Apparently, after women would work out for a while, the yoga outfit became see-through, and that became a very embarrassing thing for a very popular yoga brand. Had to be recalled. But I am, I am not aware, because I wasn't there. All I'm telling you is that the story became so live because there are eyes everywhere and anyone at any time can become an instant reporter and it's important that you respond well thought out and to do so in a positive way not a negative way because you respond negatively you respond in ways that are fighting words all you're going to do is make it a bigger story than it needed to be. Logan is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Logan. Hi, Clark. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Sure, Logan. You have decided you would like to buy individual stocks. That is correct. Tell me about that. Do you have a specific company in mind, or do you have a portfolio of companies you're interested in buying, or is it just the idea of buying individual stocks? Well, for right now, it's just the idea, um, and it's it's something that, that I think I'm really interested in, um, but the thing is, I have virtually no experience in the markets, and I just have no idea where to begin learning how to become a trader. Well, I think that a good reference is Investopedia. Okay. Investopedia will give you some... Uh, basic knowledge about how investing works, the lingo involved with it, and it's a like a reference library for you when you start trying to get a feel for investing in individual stocks. The thing I'll tell you to stay away from are message boards about investing where people are trying to get you excited about individual companies. Because a okay. lot of the hype involved with individual companies are people who've got a hidden agenda. Okay, that makes sense. I want you um, to look at investing in an individual company because you have delved deeply into what's going on with that company. There's some things okay. you can do that are dull as dishwater, but allow you to start to, to develop a knowledge base about a company you're considering investing in that goes way beyond what most people do which is reading a legal filing that has to be done four times a year by a company called a 10Q. Okay. And the 10Qs are are public. A lot of the stuff in a 10Q is jargon, but a lot of the rest takes a while to get comfortable reading 10Qs. Once you understand how to read them, you can begin to develop some knowledge about the inner workings of the finances of a company. But that is... I think, has to be married 
to you reading about the company itself, articles that are out there about how they're doing versus their competition in different things they do. And the real money is usually made in the stock market investing in companies nobody's heard of. I'm not talking about teensy, tiny companies, but I'm talking about companies that don't sell directly to the public. Sure. Uh, As an example, there's a lot of buzz about the new iPhone, was it going to be 8? And so people talk all the time about owning Apple stock. But the real money is usually made owning the suppliers who supply components that are used in Apple phones and Samsung phones and other companies' phones and tablets and electronic devices. The people behind the scenes who are not household names. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So the more you you learn about industries, knowing that the industries that that bore people or they're not interested in or where the best money almost always is made. By the way, the same thing holds true for jobs. When people are looking for jobs. Okay. A lot of times, Logan, the best jobs are with companies that no one has ever heard of at all. That, that I'll give you an example. In the restaurant business, there are a lot of companies involved in supplying different things to restaurants and people know the restaurants and may think hey i want to own stock in mcdonald's or i don't want to own stock in mcdonald's or put in the name of any company that's well known in the restaurant business where the money may be made investing in people that make equipment for restaurants or provide supplies to restaurants or anything like that okay And when you go to buy stock today, buying stock and selling stock is the easiest it's ever been from a cost standpoint. How old are you, Logan? 21. All right. So when I was 21, which was back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, (laughs) buying and selling an individual stock might have cost somewhere about $400 a trade. Wow. And that's in dollars from forever ago. Today, you can do stock trades for as little as free on the Robinhood platform. Okay. And then all the discount brokers, Schwab, Fidelity, people like that are like $5 a trade now, lots of others in that price range. So the ability to buy and sell stock at very, very low cost to no cost is here with us. It's so easy electronically, you know, right on the web. So where your effort needs to be is figuring out who you should be owning, and that's the hard part. Okay. And a lot of people are big believers in going and reading uh, Warren Buffett's annual letter. Sure. To get a sense about how he determines value in a company or an industry. Okay. Have I given um, you enough to chew on? Yeah, I, I think so. I just have there's there's one more thing that kind of got me, you know, sparked into this is is I'm wondering, do you have an opinion on like the classes or the schools that 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 kind of are in the business to teach you how to do these things? Be very wary and careful. A lot of those schools use uh, buy and sell signals, what historically were called generically red light green light systems 
that you learn their proprietary way of trading and you never really learn about any company. You just buy and sell based on what they believe is the time to be in and out of things. I despise that. Okay. I am the wrong person to ask because I hate that. And by the way, what I do love is the opposite, is for you to start with what's known as core, which is your first investing should be in a total stock market index fund, which you can read about how those work at Clark.com. And then from having a base of investing across markets, from there, you can explore into individual stocks. Just my philosophy, totally diametrically opposed to any of these buy-sell systems that are all peddled in these schools and classes. Joel joins us on the Clark Howard Show looking for your first credit card. Is that true, Joel? Yes, sir. Clark, how's it going? Great. Thank you, Joel. Hope everything's wonderful with you. Tell me uh, about your situation as you try to get your own credit card. How old are you, Joel? I'm 21 years old. Oh, that's two 21-year-olds in a row on the show. So are you in college or out of college? I'm currently in college. Are you full-time or part-time? Full-time, yes, at the moment. Uh, Summer, it's going to have to be part-time, but taking classes in the summer as well. The reason I ask is if you're 21 and full-time in college, you're eligible for what's known as a college student credit card, mm. which okay. uh, the a lot of the credit card issuers specifically will waive income requirements and prior credit history requirements for college students because college students turn out to be extremely profitable credit card customers. It used to be as a college student at age 18, you could get one, but the law was changed and now credit card companies are able to market as they wish at age 21. Hmm. Okay, and uh, I'm also, I've am i also heard that getting a credit card from a credit union would be uh, pretty good, although my current situation, my small bank credit union sort of merged into a region uh, credit region banks, uh, like a regional bank. So, so it's a bank, not a it, credit union? I think it is a bank now. Yeah, so uh, at your university, there's a credit union almost always available, not promoted, but available to uh, faculty, staff, and students. Mm-hmm. Ask somebody who's a professor at your college or an administrator or whatever, ask them what credit union the school has. Join it and try to get a student credit card there. If not, all the major issuers have college student credit card programs, and any of those should get you started with your first card. And all you got to do is use it sparingly, pay the bill in full every month, and you'll establish a rock-solid credit story. And by the time you graduate from college, you'll be in a great position to get whatever credit you want moving forward, including things like car loans. Okay, here are some really surprising car facts for you. In Churchill, Canada, residents leave their cars unlocked. That's in case someone needs to escape a polar bear. It's true. And in Sweden, drivers are required by law to keep their headlights on at all times. Day, night, rain, sunshine, doesn't matter. 
And now, here's another interesting and actually helpful thing about cars that you might not know. TrueCar also helps people get used cars. That's right. TrueCar isn't just for new cars. Their certified dealer network also has an inventory of over 700,000 pre-owned cars nationwide. So whether you're looking for a new or used car, you can get real pricing on actual inventory and a better buying experience through the TrueCar certified dealer network. Oh yeah, here's another fun fact. TrueCar customers can see if they're getting a good or great price before they buy. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with their TrueCar certified dealers. So when you're ready to buy that car, new or used, visit TrueCar and enjoy a better car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Glad you're with us on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you and your wallet, that you have knowledge and information that can help you save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our website. And when you're looking for deals, check out ClarkDeals.com. Our Clark Deals newsletter today is packed with great bargains that can help you stretch your dollar. So... Coming up in a half hour, there is an inside-the-beltway fight going on about access to your most private information that I need to make you aware of. It's a nasty kind of thing that shows the incredible power of dirty money in Washington. And I'm going to fill you in in a half hour. I, I have been nervous about talking about what I'm going to talk about in a half hour because I don't want to make you cynical or paranoid, but I do need to make you aware, and I'll do the best I can to avoid cynical or paranoid. I'm going to talk right now about something that's gotten enormous, enormous focus this past few days. There was a study that came out end of last week last Friday, I think it was, that said that somewhere around 40% of jobs that exist now in the United States are going to disappear in the next 15 years because of advanced automation and robots. And this report was put out by a consulting firm, PwC, and the reality is, which I guess is PricewaterhouseCoopers, I guess is what that is, maybe. Anyway, the point is a lot of people took that headline and took from it that automation and robots are our enemy, that they're destroying jobs in America, and that they are awful, terrible, rotten. And then right after, like on Q, when that happened, Uber that is testing autonomous driving vehicles had a wreck in Arizona that was a what's called a high-impact wreck, and I've seen pictures of it. It was not, not a pretty picture, that wreck that occurred. And so now Uber has temporarily frozen its autonomous driving system test. So here's the thing. You go back through history, 
And let's skip the word robot. Let's skip the word automation. There have always been developments in what we now call technology where the way we do things have changed to make them better, safer, cheaper, faster. Now, not all developments hit all four of those, but that's when they're the best. And people think about the losses. I gave you an example last year when there was another big fuss about robotics. It was about agriculture in the United States that accounted for how something between 97 and 99% of people earned a living back not too long after our nation was founded. And then because of breakthroughs in how the farm works, and I'm not talking about modern breakthroughs, I'm talking about back in the early 1800s, suddenly we needed less people working on the farm. And we have moved through the years where farmers are producing by far the most food farms ever have and doing so with a fraction of 1% of the American people working on the farm, where it used to be 97 to 99%. So did that mean that that 97 to 99% of people all ended up unemployed? It did not. The nature of jobs and work Never stop changing. Never stop changing. You think about the things you use around you in your house and the changes they bring about. So much focus today on all the retailers closing their doors. But then what about all the people who now have work because of delivery? of things that people are having delivered to them instead of things that people go and buy at a physical store. The nature of work just changes. In the midst of those changes, there are always people who have trouble adapting to the change. Maybe because of their age. Something I want to address sometime soon on the show is how people past age 45 often suffer from subtle or not-so-subtle employment discrimination. And if you're mid-career and technology eliminates your current position, it may be more difficult for you to find that next thing that pays as well as what you were doing because of age discrimination and employment. And so there are always individual winners and losers from technological change. But do not believe any of the people who say that there's just not going to be any jobs anymore because of technology. Because that's not how it's worked through history. It's not how it's going to work today. And it's not how it's going to work tomorrow. You ever heard somebody use the expression Luddites? 
I think there was an actual guy named Ludd who used to be long ago opposed to any new way of doing things. And so people, you can check me out, Joel, but I think there was a guy named Ludd is where that comes from. And there are always people who are afraid of any new way and are nostalgic for the way things were. Well, I want you to know we live in American society and people around the earth live so much better than people did. Let's take a wider swath of time. Two generations ago, people didn't live nearly as well around the world and here as people live now. And why? Because of technological change that has occurred over these last two generations. Jay joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Jay. Hi, Clark. Good to be there with you. Well, great to have you here. You want to talk about a way to save money on prescriptions. Yes. Last week you had mentioned BlinkHealth.com as a good place to look for an inexpensive uh, prescription, and it is. Uh, but I found one even better, and that's GoodRx, G-O-O-D-R-X.com. Uh, I had priced a prescription for a family member at BlinkRx, and it came up at $77, which was a great price. And then I checked at GoodRx, and it was $40. And it's in a generic, but this is one where the regular prescription would cost over $700 for this size of the supply I was purchasing. Uh, so that, that's another a very good place to get it. And the other thing I have discovered is that most of the people go to the doctor today and they have an e-script done. The doctor doesn't want to write out a prescription. He'll say, which pharmacy do you want me to send it to? And people will announce, send it to this pharmacy. And unless you know which pharmacy is charging a price that you want or you agree is a good one, uh, you are better off getting a paper prescription and shopping around because the prices are all over the place any part of the country you're in wherever you go call a number of pharmacies you will find the prices go from very low to extremely high and you won't believe it's the same prescription whether it's the uh, what's the name brand drug or a generic drug and you know this is this is something that um all the there's a group of tv stations around the country that in february did what they call a sweeps week story, comparing the price of prescription drugs at various places to get them. And over and over again, the most expensive place to get prescription drugs was to have them filled at the big pharmacy chains that people saved substantial money going to small independent pharmacies, which you might not think of them as being a place to get something cheaper, but often they were cheaper. And the cheapest place of all in that uh, TV report was Costco Wholesale to fill prescription drugs. That, that, that I, I've also found. I found a prescription that was uh, $70 in most places, sometimes 50 And at Costco, it was selling for $20. And that's, uh, that's because of how Costco prices prescriptions which is different than the historical model of how prescriptions are priced. But I want to say something. You said, you made a suggestion, and that was, Jay, that people get 
a paper script instead of it being submitted electronically. But the other thing you can do is write while the doctor is getting ready to write a prescription, you can go to GoodRx when they say where you'd like it filled, and you can look and see what that is right while you're there with the doctor. And that, when they say where you'd idea. like it filled, you say, oh, well, it's cheapest at XYZ. Will you send it there? That, that is a great idea. There used to be, many years ago, boy, this goes back a very long time, in New Jersey they passed a law that required the uh, pharmacists to post the prices of their uh, the 20 or 40 most utilized prescriptions. And that continued around the country uh, for quite a number of years after that. Uh, they've stopped it, and the reason is the the uh, big pharma has said, well, they don't reflect real prices because after insurance, most people have only a small copay, which is a fraction of the price. And yet that's not true because we're prepaying, and it's built into the cost of your prescription drug coverage. So they raise the price of the prescription drug coverage you are prepaying, and you pay a lower price at the counter. That's not a bargain. I think that's completely true. And, you know, the prescription drug thing that I mentioned, I think just a few days ago, is that we pay the highest prescription drug prices in the world because we are subsidizing the entire rest of the globe's prescriptions here in the United States. And so we, the American people, are shouldering the cost of 100% of the R&D taking place in the world for prescription meds. And that is not okay. Shelly is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Shelly. Hello, how are you? Wonderful, thank you, Shelly. So, Shelly, you got a kid going off to college, is that right? That's correct. This is actually my second one going to college. Well, great. How can I be of help with that? I have a question um, that revolves around the information that the colleges and universities collect from us as a family. Um, there's that FAFSA um, from the College Board that asks for everything from A to Z, personal, confidential, all of that stuff. How about then, the level yeah. the level of information they ask for may it's be pretty- the most intrusive other than what you do when you fill out a tax return? Exactly. And then we also see that there's a CSS profiling, and some of the schools can have like an iDoc or a Dropbox and an email, and we're sending all of our confidential and personal information there. So we have two, two questions about that. How secure and protected are the sites that we're sending everything? And then if we're applying for merit scholarships, why did the colleges and universities even need that information? So it's uh, it's College Application 101, unless you want to pay full retail that you have to go through the whole FAFSA thing and provide the information. Even if you have a child who's likely to scholarship, they're unlikely to scholarship out, meaning that mm-hmm. they'd be a completely a free ride. And that's why the, the doing the FAFSA is part of the whole process of applying for college and figuring out how you're going to pay for it. And on the question of how secure is any of the information in the hands of the colleges, gosh, it's like everything else today with these databases. I don't know that there's such a thing as a database 
that I could say to you with 100% certainty nothing would ever go wrong. You know, okay. people will ask me about, well, I'll talk about like a, a free kind of thing, like any of the sites I talk about where they let you have access to this information or that information for free, but you have to give them your social security number. And people say, why would you say that's okay to do when I talk about how dangerous social security numbers can be, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to look at things as a degree of risk. You know that if you do the FAFSA, it improves the uh, the odds that the cost of sending your child to college is going to be more favorable. Right. And, if, and I was confused because it's, um, you know, like we're talking about merit scholarships versus them looking at us generally for need-based. Sure, but even with a merit scholarship, it's the, the rarest of rare situations where a child gets a full free ride. So right. even if your child gets some merit scholarships, it's 100% free ride is not unheard of, but extremely unlikely unless your kid is like a true extreme success and genius academically. Right. So there is a risk that that something could go wrong with your information and it could fall in the wrong hands. But the reward of the value of doing the FAFSA makes it worth doing. And that's why, in spite of the potential for risk, I do recommend, Shelley, that you go through that process. It's a gauntlet, though. Hey, everyone. I'm Maggie McGrath, a staff writer at Forbes magazine and your new host for a show called Forbes on Trump. Politicians are all talk. No action. I'll be speaking with the editors and writers who are reporting on the 45th president. We'll hear what they're finding out about his wealth, his business associates, and the ways in which he and his policies are affecting the economy, consumers, and all aspects of the business world. Somebody has to come out and tell it like it is. Along the way, we'll dive into Forbes archives, which contain decades of information that will add context to the current White House administration. So listen to this. Listen to this. That's Forbes on Trump on Podcast One. Subscribe now at iTunes, and don't forget to rate, review, and share. Stay tuned for 60 seconds of AP News headlines right after this podcast. I'm so glad you're here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. Clark.com is our website, and that's a great place for you to get our podcast. Now, if you miss the chance to listen to our show as it happens and you want to catch up, you can catch up with our podcast product, and it's something that that I am just thrilled with that we make that available to you. It's kind of like your own personal DVR if you miss something. Now, there's something that you may have missed in all the activity going on in your life and all the news out there about a crazy, crazy inside the beltway thing going on with your privacy right now it is absolutely bonkers but there's something moving quickly through the u.s congress and it looks like it might end up passing tomorrow past the senate 50 to 48 and looks like it's going to squeak through in the u.s house tomorrow And what it will allow is the monopoly provider of Internet to your home. Most of us only have a single provider of Internet to our home or business. will be given the right 
under this new law to spy on you all they want, capture everything you ever type on your keyboard, everything you ever use an internet connection for, every website you visit, every last thing you do, and you'll have no rights. How the phone company or cable company uses any of your deep, private, personal information. Now, you may wonder, should you really freak out about that? Because if you use Google, Google is already collecting so much information about you. Google, though, two things. One, with many of the Google products, they ask you, is it okay with you if we do these things? And some of the Google services now divide it into five categories. And you decide in each of those categories, yeah, they can know this about you or no, they can't. And you choose what you want them to capture about you. The problem is with Google, you can choose not to use them. But with the internet connection you have, so many of us across the country have no choice in who we use as a provider. And I find it incredibly invasive, and it shows that the political class remains totally out of touch with the American people that they would look at it as one of the highest priorities that they have to rush through a piece of legislation that the phone companies and cable companies want. I think it's atrocious and outrageous. But it's a freight train coming down the tracks, and it looks certain to happen. And until we have more competition for the connection to your home or business, which, by the way, is going to happen in the next couple of years because of new technologies coming available, the reality is that your most personal information identifiable to you will be captured by the phone company or cable company, whoever it is who brings that internet to your home. I think about things that you might want kept private, like a medical condition you have. You know, I think how many people come up to me, I've been so public over the last eight years about having cancer and what's been going on with the cancer. And every year when I go for tests, by the way, I have more tests next month. And when I do that, that I just am open about it and talk about it. I treat my life as an open book. Other people are very, very private about what goes on with them medically or what goes on in their lives. And I think we do deserve to be able to set up our own barriers for privacy. And I think that that this is such a priority for the phone companies and the cable companies is terrible and terribly misguided and that the Congress would set such a high priority on it. I'm clueless why. You know, the tracking of us happens everywhere in so many different ways. 
a lot of times, though, it's us choosing to allow it to happen. I talked the other day about how Kroger is testing technologies where, with your permission, as you walk down an aisle, they can suggest things to you, specifically to you, that they know that last time you were there on your Kroger Plus card, you bought this, that, or the other. Do you need more of those? This is on sale right here. We saw you bought that before. That's your choice if you want to have it happen. I don't have any problem with any of the shopper tracker if it's something that you want. On the other hand, what I always object to is where you're not given a choice that gives you rights to secure your privacy. And the European system where you have a right to privacy digitally, I think is the right thing to do. Most people aren't going to exercise that right. I was signing up for a frequent flyer program yesterday. I'm taking a a flight within Europe on an airline I hadn't flown before. And they asked me at a point where I was going to buy the ticket, would I like for them to send me specials? And I said, no. And then the next thing was a question about them being able to track me. And they were asking for permission. I didn't give it. You have to give it. And to me, that's a reasonable thing for you and me to be given control over our own personal information. And when you go and shop, that's one of the areas where there will be a trade-off. You know, with the stores tracking your eye movements and knowing who you are based on your phone. And again, if you are given if you give permission to a store to track you when you're there and suggest deals to you or offer you sale coupons or whatever, and you choose to let them do it, that's fine. On the other hand, if you want to remain anonymous, you should have that right. Deep is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Deep. Hey, Clark. Thanks to have my call. Sure. And you are looking to buy a home, is that right? Yes, Clark, I am. And uh, uh, good news is I got a one house. I push an offer for that, and hopefully soon the deal will be done. And I have a question for you about the mortgage loan. Right, so I shop around too many mortgage lenders, and as you suggested, I should go first for my credit union, and I went for there, and they gave me quotation for the mortgage loan. By the way, I should tell you that whatever mortgage quotes you got before today, the rates today Mm -hmm. are meaningfully lower than they were even just a few days ago because of the um, uncertainty in Washington, mortgage rates have dropped. So you may find that whatever quotes you're getting, you may find that that a requote will be lower based on uh, your particular credit situation, whatever you would have gotten before. Rates have Mm -hmm. gone back to where they were when they were lower back at the beginning of the year. 
Right, that's a good news class. So uh, I shop around too many uh, private mortgage lenders, and they give me different codes. So I don't know, and I mean, which code is good for me because some of the codes have interest rate like four percent, but their APR is four point five two, and some mortgage lender gave me the interest rate three point eight seven, and their APR was four point. Uh, eight to something like that. So okay, I don't know what a great I question. I haven't been asked a question about APR, and I don't know how long. So APR was designed to give people the ability to comparison shop loan to loan, and it hasn't mm-hmm. worked. The way APR is calculated on a mortgage is so weird that you can only go with the actual stated interest rate, and you cannot actually comparison shop based on APR. So if somebody gives you a rate of 3.875 and somebody else gives you 4.0 on a that's uh, 30-year fixed, I guess you're looking at? Yes, yes, Pam. Somebody gives you a quote and one of them is an eighth of a point lower. The way I would compare one lender to another is based on what comes after that initial interest rate. And the next thing you look at Are they going to charge you any points for originating that loan? And each full point is 1% of the amount of money you're borrowing. So with the 4.0 and then the 3.875, do you know, did they quote you any any number of points with those rates? Yes, they are not charging any points on these mortgage loans to me. On either of those quotes? Right. Okay, so then that takes us to the third category that matters, and that is closing costs. Is the closing costs equivalent on the 4.0 versus the 3.875, or are they significantly yes, only, higher on the 3.875? It's only difference of, uh, it's only difference of $200 or $250, that's it. So that's it, almost no difference to get that. So the 3.875, an eighth of a point lower, has couple hundred dollars more in closing costs. More, right. right. Yeah, so that is such an insignificant amount of money that it's almost meaningless. So the way you could go from there, if you want to be absolutely certain what you do next, is you'd figure out how much money you would save per month on your mortgage payment okay. at that eighth of a point lower and divide that amount into the $200 additional closing costs. And if it takes more than 30 months for you to even out, go with the 4% instead of 3.875, likely you'd be better off just going in the 3.875. Got it. But again, you may find that those quotes may be obsolete, and you may be looking at, a lower rate today than those quotes. And that's why until you lock in, who knows? David's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, David. How are you doing today? Yes, fine. Thanks, Clark. David, you have a question about retirement savings that's puzzled you. Well, yeah. I mean, I try to save as much as I can. I put five into my my regular TSP. I put five into my Roth. But... Nobody ever seems to ever want to match the Roth, and I'm trying to figure out, is, is there a rule against it, or do companies just not do it because it's too much of a pain to, to do it? You mean to 
provide some kind of match or incentive to your Roth IRA? Correct. There's no provision in the law that I'm aware of that allows that. Anytime an employer would provide anything like that as a match, where in a 401k or you said TSP, so you are a federal worker or are you military? Uh, actually, both. Well, thank you for your service. So are oh, you, you? So you are working. I got. I got to get this straight because we got to talk this through. So you are a civilian employee of the federal government, and you also serve in the military. Correct. I, I was active duty, and now I'm a reservist, getting ready to retire. So. Well, thank and then you. I work for, what branch of the service for, have you been in? Uh, Air Force. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, they call that the country club branch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you got the best golf courses. Anyway. Um, yeah, too bad I don't enjoy golf, so I guess I'll get slack for that. <laughs> so as far as the TSP, now that you're a civilian, you get a match on that. Well, in the federal, yes. Yeah, so that match is very important. You want to make sure you're contributing enough to pull to pull out to get the full match, right? Which I do. I, they they match up to five percent dollar dollars. So I so I you're saving effectively ten percent there, and then you're doing five percent in your own Roth IRA, right? Well, I'm doing the Roth. They had the Roth TSP, so I'm doing five percent into that as well. Great. So anything else you want to contribute? you would want to keep in the TSP because the TSP, uh, both the the regular and the Roth version, are the best retirement plan anybody in America has. Oh, I know. It's fantastic. I, I listen to you a lot, so I know. <laughs> Sorry? I listen to you a lot, so I know. And I, and I terrorize my kids with your show as well. That is really child abuse when you make kids listen to me. Oh, it's, every time I get in the car, they're listening to it. And, you know, I hope they listen, learn a few things here and there, even if not everything. So, Well, I feel very badly for your kids. They're stuck <laughs> listening to me. They're going to be warped adults. But anyway, um, as far as the match thing, an employer can match a Roth 401k just like they would a regular 401k. The only thing they can't do is they can't match an outside Roth IRA. So I don't know the Roth TSP. That's not eligible for the same 5% match that you have with the regular TSP? No, they don't match any of that. So the only thing they'll match is the, the standard 401k TSP. Yeah, I have no idea why, but the great news is you're saving 5% of your pay before tax, 5% of your pay after tax. And you're getting 5% of your pay matched, so you're effectively saving 15%. That's fantastic. The only thing I'd ask you is every time you get, uh, do they still have step increases? Step in grade Uh, or whatever they call it? Not in the section I'm in. Oh. Because as a TSA, which I know you love a TSA, we don't get step promotions. so. So you'd get either a full promotion or nothing. Well, yeah, well, let's not go there because we don't get a whole lot of promotion. Okay. All right. I was just trying to see. I was trying to come up with a way to nudge you up occasionally in your contribution percents if there was more pay coming in your check. But you're already doing a great job saving effectively 15% of your pay, and I'm very appreciative of that and also that you continue to serve 
in the reserves after having served active duty in the Air Force. You're doing great stuff to protect our freedom and to protect our country. Thanks for listening to the Clark Howard Podcast. Download new episodes every Monday through Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly one million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. So if you like to read, how do you choose what you're going to read? Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. And it's coming to Podcast One in just a few weeks. So keep your eyes and ears open for Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. What we're learning about the Manchester bomber. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. The father of the alleged Manchester suicide bomber says his son didn't do it. We don't believe in killing innocents, he told the AP. But the father reportedly was a member of an al-Qaeda-backed group in Libya years ago. That, according to a former Libyan security official. Meanwhile, police have carried out raids on a block of apartments in Manchester. Witnesses say they heard explosions. Alan Kinsey was a neighbor of the alleged bomber. The actual family that had been there, I'd I'd never really come across them in bad ways it was always even when I said hello he never seemed to speak back to you he was just like kept themselves to themselves and that was about it the British putting more military troops on the streets now as police say it's clear this is a network they're investigating President Trump has arrived in Brussels for NATO meetings after a visit this morning with the Pope at the Vatican I'm Rita Foley